0: The Old Testament lesson for the sixth Sunday of Easter is from Numbers chapter 21. From Mount Hor, the people of Israel set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pool. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 16th chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Jesus said, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world, and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly, and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things, and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O One of the most interesting stories in the Old Testament comes in 2 Kings when you hear about the Syrian commander named Naaman. He was one of the chiefs of the army of the Syrians, and he had a problem, which is that he came down with leprosy, a disease that rendered him an outcast, the kind of thing that made you have to leave the city and live in a colony by yourself, a leper colony. He came down with leprosy, and everything was at stake for him. He had a high position, but here he was living in shame. He had a servant girl who had been captured from Israel, from God's people, and that servant girl took pity on her master, and she said to Naaman, You should go to Israel and seek out the prophet who can heal you. Naaman listened to her. He had nothing to lose, I suppose. And so he went to Israel, and he found the prophet, and he arrived at Elisha's door looking to be healed. This is where the story becomes so interesting, because, of course, Elisha doesn't come out to meet Naaman. He sends his servant to talk to Naaman, and the servant says this, Go and wash in the Jordan River seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Simple instructions. The easiest thing possible. Go to the river, wash seven times, and you'll be clean. Perhaps it seemed too little for Naaman, too simple, too material, too trivial for someone as important as he. He was angry, and he went away. And this is what he said. Behold, I thought that that prophet would surely come out, and he would stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and he'd wave his hand over the place where the leprosy is. Are not the rivers of Damascus, where I am from, are they not better than this Measly Jordan River, I'm not going to wash in this river. He was too good for it, or he thought it was too little for him. Too trivial, too simple, too easy to do. We have a similar problem in our world, like Naaman. We think that things are too trivial, the things that God tells us to do. Like hear his word and say our prayers and be baptized and eat and drink his body and blood and love our neighbors. We think they're too trivial. We think we have more important things to do in this life. Things that occupy our times and our attention. We think it's too little. We ask the same kind of question that Naaman asked of that river. He said, how can the Jordan River do such a great thing as wash my skin clean? we ask a similar question. How can these things, being in this place, listening to some fellow in the pulpit, how can the words from this chancel, your sins are forgiven, how can they do such great things? Surely something more important, something more magnificent is what we need. We need something better, something more grand. So often, we fall into the same temptation as Naaman. How can any of this do such great things? The answer is very simple. And this is the kind of answer that I'm so often looking for from confirmation students for, for example, if you ask these confirmation students, they'll tell you (laughs) how excited I get when I hear this kind of an answer. How can these things be so magnificent? What is it that makes them so grand? It's God's promises. God's promises. Just to let you know how Jesus is always the right answer in Sunday school, God's promises is always the right answer when I'm asking how such things can happen. It's because God has promised it. He has taken His words, His words which created the world and everything you see which made you out of nothing, He takes His words and He attaches them to specific material things in this world for your good, for your benefit. Just like He did in our Old Testament lesson, the people of Israel grumbled as they so often did, And so God disciplined them. He sent fiery serpents to bite them. And it worked. They repented. They were sorry for what they had done. And they cried out to God. They said, Moses, pray to God for us that he would take away those serpents. And so Moses prayed and God said, erect on a pole a bronze serpent. And instruct the people, if they look at that serpent, anyone who's bitten, he will be healed. There it was. God's promise. Attached to something material something tangible, something they could see with their eyes. And any Israelite might have had cause to ask, how can a bronze serpent, how can looking at a bronze serpent on a pole do such great things? How could that possibly heal me when I've been bitten? I need a doctor. I need an antidote. I need some medicine not to look at a bronze serpent. How can looking at a bronze serpent do such great things? It's because of God's promises. He took his eternal word and he attached it to something trivial. Something that's going to go away. Something that is passing for their good. So that they could be saved. He does that for you and me as well. Just think of all the ways he does this. Attaching his word to something as trivial as water. Something as common as water. And yet with his word and by his command, that water becomes a saving flood that washes away all sin. He takes his word and attaches it to bread and wine so that it becomes Christ's body and blood, which forgives all of your sins, uniting you to Christ himself. He takes his word and attaches it to the likes of you, people sitting in a pew here together in this place, so that you are built up by one another according to his grace. It's because of his promises that you enjoy the fellowship of the saints, that you are encouraged and strengthened in your faith by those around you. It's by his promises that when I say, in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. It's by his promises that my voice carries to you the forgiveness of sins. It delivers exactly what it says. Your sins are forgiven. Why does God do it that way? Why does he attach his words to such trivial things? Why doesn't he send Elisha out to wave his hand and in a big spectacle, Heal him of his leprosy? Why does he attach it to the Jordan River? Why does he attach it to these signs for us? I think there are at least three reasons, and the first is this. He does it to humble us. He confounds us with how simple it is. It seems like we should have to work harder for it. It seems like something more magnificent is needed. He does it so that we are not puffed up, thinking that some spectacle saved us, instead recognizing That no spectacle, no glorious sight could save us, but instead something as profound as God's word, hearing his promises. That we have nothing in ourselves that could save us, that it has to come from outside of us. It has to come, in fact, from the one who created the heavens and the earth with a word. The original obstacle to faith, the obstacle that arose in the Garden of Eden, that obstacle was pride thinking that the things that God gives are not good, that there's something better. And so what does God do? He takes his very, very good things, the blessings that he gives us in abundance, and he makes them seem small and insignificant by attaching them to these material things so that we have to trust in him, so that we cannot trust in anything else. St. Paul puts it this way. He says, God chooses... You and I, we who are weak and foolish in this world, he chooses things that are weak and foolish to put to shame the things that are strong and seem to be wise. He chooses trivial, material things to put to shame those things that would gain the uh, praise and adoration of the world. He does it with water. He does it with bread and wine. He does it with a voice. He does it to humble us. And I think he also does it to prove faith, so that when we hear and obey, when we attend to the trivial things that he has given us, when we eat and drink for the forgiveness of our sins, when we listen and believe, our faith is proven. Just like when Abraham heard God and took Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice him, God said, now I know that you trust me. And he counted his faith to him as righteousness. So also, when we hear and believe, when we receive the things that God has given us, in spite of what they appear to be, our faith is shown for what it truly is, something that trusts in God. He also does it in this way for the very simple reason that he wants to give us his blessings. He wants them to be delivered to us. He wanted to heal Naaman of his leprosy. He wanted to heal the people of that deadly poison that they had received by being bitten by snakes. He wants to forgive your sins, and so he provides a way, a means, for that to happen. He wants you to have these gifts, and so he has given you all of these ways to receive them. What a blessing it is, and how desperately he wants you to have it, so that even though it seems trivial, and if anyone walked in off the street and saw us doing the things we're doing here tonight, they would think we were out of our minds, and yet We're not, because we have God's promises, and they are sure and certain. I always wonder, when I hear this story from Numbers, I always wonder, who wouldn't look at that bronze serpent? If you'd been bitten by the snake, why wouldn't you do it? There are a few reasons why people wouldn't look, and they're the same reasons why people wouldn't come to church, why they wouldn't hear God's promises, why they wouldn't receive his sacraments. Perhaps they think they don't need it. Perhaps they think, like people who were bitten by a snake, I don't really need to have this venom taken out of me. I don't need to be cured. This isn't a deadly poison. Perhaps they think the sickness of sin inside of them is not sickness unto death. And so they don't come. Perhaps they despise God. Perhaps they say, I hate your discipline and your punishment. And so I don't want anything to do with you. Even if it takes me to my dying breath, I'm not going to look at that bronze serpent. I'm not going to hear your word. I'm not going to receive your gifts. Perhaps they don't want to be found a fool. They don't want to be seen by others eating and drinking a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine expecting that it will save them. They don't want to be seen listening to some fool standing in a pulpit wearing a dress. They don't want to hear the mockery of the people around them. Perhaps they just doubt. Perhaps it's all too simple, too material. Perhaps it doesn't make any sense. And it's a tragedy. Because, of course, that is salvation. That bronze serpent was salvation for those people who had been bitten by a snake. All of these things that you see and perceive and receive here tonight, these things are salvation. As trivial as they seem, it's tragic. It would be tragic if an Israelite was bitten and didn't look up. It's tragic when somebody who is sick with sin doesn't receive the gifts that God gives to them. All the more reason for you and I to spend our days extolling the blessings that God gives us by all of these means, for us to talk endlessly about how wonderful baptism is, what it has done for us, how precious Christ's body and blood is, how much it does for us, how valuable and dear those words of forgiveness are that you cannot hear Anywhere else. How precious all of that is. We should speak about it endlessly. Just like if you were among the people of Israel and your neighbor got bitten by a snake and you, you, would have, you wouldn't stand there and let him not look at the bronze serpent. You'd insist on it. You'd take his face and point it at the bronze serpent so that he would be healed. How much more should we constantly urge one another and those around us to come where our salvation may be found? Tonight, in our Gospel lesson, Jesus takes his promises and he attaches them to something particular. He attaches them to prayer, something which in the eyes of the world certainly looks silly. Although the world likes to talk about prayer, just last week on Thursday was the national day of prayer. Every year the president is supposed to issue a proclamation, setting aside one day of the year for everybody to pray. If you have a chance, it pays to go and look at what President Biden said because it's a good contrast between how the world thinks about prayer and how Jesus talks about prayer. His declaration about prayer was all about joining our hearts and our minds together so that we can have a common spirit, so that we can, by the power of prayer, accomplish the things that we set out to accomplish. It's all about psychology, things in our heads. If we set our minds to it, we can really get things done. That is not in the least what Jesus means when he talks about prayer. It's not some pop psychology. Jesus is not a self-help guru. He's not trying to get us all on the same page. He wants us to have his blessings, and so he gives us this very simple thing. He says, ask in my name, and the Father will give it to you. This is not about self-motivation. This is about talking to your Father who wants to give you blessings. It couldn't be simpler. It couldn't be more profound. There couldn't be a greater gift attached to such a wonderful thing as speaking to your heavenly Father. Jesus is not relying on manipulation or tricks. He is relying on his promises. His words are powerful. And so, ask in Jesus' name and you will receive it. Ask. He confounds us, humbles us, so that we have to ask. He proves our faith, because when we do not ask, it can only be because we doubt. He shows us that he wants to give us what he has for us, the blessings that he has for us, because he gives us this simple means, just ask. We learn something about how prayer works in our Old Testament lesson. You notice that perhaps the people of Israel, when they repented, went to Moses and asked him to pray. And they prayed for something specific. They said, pray that these serpents will be taken away from us. And you may have noticed that God answered their prayer, but he did not give them just what they asked for. He didn't take the serpents away. The serpents remained. There they were, biting the people of Israel. Instead, what he gave them was a path to salvation, a means of salvation. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It's to pray according to his will and not our own will to trust that whatever he gives us is best that when we ask for the things we think we need he certainly hears our prayer and will either give those things to us or something far better he gave the people of israel something far better he gave them a way to strengthen their faith a way to be humbled and to trust in him he gives us the very same thing when you ask for your afflictions the things you suffer, your sorrows and your grief to be taken away. And it's not. It isn't because your father hasn't heard your prayer. It isn't because you didn't ask properly. It's because he has something better to give you. It's because he means to strengthen your faith. means because he means to draw you closer to him. It's because his blessings are more grand and profound than you could imagine. And so he will give you what is best. To pray in Jesus' name is to ask in certainty for the things that he has promised and to ask according to his will for the things that we think we need. But above all, above all, it is to ask in confidence that every answer to our prayers is gracious, that they are the answers of a loving Heavenly Father who would never, ever do anything to hurt you, but only ever will help you. As surely as Naaman washed and was clean in the Jordan River, he finally listened. His servants prevailed upon him. They said, don't be a fool. The prophet said it. Go and do it. What's the harm in trying? And so he was healed. As surely as he was healed by washing in the Jordan River, and as surely as Israel was saved by looking at that bronze serpent, and as surely as Christ died and rose again from the grave, so also, when you pray, will you receive And when you receive what you have asked for, when you receive gifts from your Heavenly Father, as Jesus says, your joy will be full. And so, listen to his promises, believe them, and ask. To God alone be all glory now and forever. Amen.